All right. So welcome to the Alpha Human Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Rosenberg, and our guest today is Dr. Sean Baker. Dr. Baker is a multi-sport elite level athlete with multiple world records in rowing. He's an orthopedic surgeon. He served in the U.S. Air Force as a nuclear weapons launch officer and as a combat trauma surgeon and chief of orthopedics while deployed to Afghanistan. Dr. Baker is also the face of the carnivore diet movement. He's the founder and CEO of Meterex, and this is an organization that educates and promotes the benefits of an all-meat diet. He recently published a definitive title on the subject, The Carnivore Diet, and he is the host, or the co-host, I should say, of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Dr. Baker, welcome to the show. Hey, Lars. Thanks for that great introduction. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here, and uh, I look forward to this discussion. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. I think I pulled you away from one of your uh, animalistic workouts uh, over there. Well, I, I actually got everything I wanted to do done, so I timed it just right. I literally jumped off a pull bar one minute before we started, so I got all the things I wanted to do done. So no, you didn't pull me away from anything. I just it's just good good time management. Total <laughs> cool. my part. Fantastic, fantastic. Okay, so um, Dr. Baker, you are the thought leader, uh, if you will, for an improbable health movement that just a few years ago would have seemed absolutely absurd. I mean, an all-meat diet or a diet made up of exclusively animal products? I mean, given all the bad press meat and eggs have gotten over the past few decades and how it should be highly restricted within any diet, according to all the major health associations from the ADA, uh, the American Diabetes Association to the American Heart Association. It is a movement that you would have thought would not be very popular, and yet it is gaining more and more momentum every day over the past few years. And, and you, more than any other individual, have been the most instrumental proponent in publicizing the idea that this is not only a healthy way to eat, but that you will actually thrive on a carnivore diet. How in the world did all of this come about? I mean, how did you become the face of this movement? Well, I mean, I don't think it was by design. I think there was some serendipity there. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, just as, as a physician, you know, you, know you, you get frustrated seeing, you know, patient after patient after patient. You know, we have this system that doesn't work very well, and uh, we have just this chronic disease epidemic. And, you know, I was always, you know, as an athlete my whole life, I thought, well, I just train hard. And, you know, then, then when I got into my mid-40s, you know, I'm in my mid-50s now. When I got into my mid-40s, I, uh, you know, started to see my health decline. And so I, I, you know, said, well, this doesn't make sense. I'm, I'm, I'm doing everything right. I'm eating a relatively healthy diet. Uh, but I really had to, to, to experiment diet. And so I did that, and then as I got better, at it um, and, and saw my health improve dramatically going with different variations of diet. And finally, this, this sort of carnivorous diet. I did it as kind of a, just an experiment, a 30-day experiment. I'd seen some other people doing it and having success with it. I 
you know, at this point had understood enough about nutrition or more like more realistically, the lack of knowledge that we have in nutrition. I mean, our nutrition science just in general is not very good science. It's not a very strong science. It's not really very scientific, quite honestly. I mean, we don't have real experiments. We have, uh, you know, really kind of weak, weak data and we sort of infer a lot of stuff and that really doesn't get it at the end of the day. At the end of the day, when we're looking for results, we need results-based science and we don't have that in nutrition for the most part for, for certainly for long-term stuff and so having sort of you know read enough to sort of question the nutritional paradigms i said well it's, what's the harm i mean i, I like you know, i like steaks i like steak and eggs i did it for 30 days and lo and behold i didn't die i didn't i didn't get scurvy my heart didn't stop my colon didn't fall out you know and and, and i felt as good as i could remember feeling in, in many decades and so um, you know, for my personal experience, I, you know, once the 30 days was over, I said, well, that was fun. That was neat. I went back to a more regular, inclusive diet, and I just didn't feel as good. I just started seeing all things start hurting again. My digestion's not as good. My energy's not as good. So I rapidly said, you know, I like feeling good. I like performing good. You know, call me, call me crazy, but those are the things that, you know, I enjoy as a human being. And so I went back on it, and, and now I'm three and a half years into this diet, and, you know, for whatever. And, and I think the fact that I'm an MD and I'm an athlete, and I'm not a wallflower. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid to speak my mind. I'm not afraid mm. to push back against people. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a competitive person. You know, I've, I've been that way my whole life. I, I like to win. And, you know, I mean, there, there's some, you know, obviously there's some bias in what I do. But, you know, more importantly, I just, you know, I'm results-based. I, I said, I don't care what your theory is. I don't care what your inference, what you think is true. I want to know what actually happens when people do a certain thing. We've never, you know, on a meat-based diet, I mean, outside of, you know, certain, you know, indigenous populations and, and, and isolated study, you know, 100 years ago, we've never really tested it to say, this is going to be bad. What we do is we, we look at a standard American diet and we realize that, you know, there's some meat in there and therefore, you know, meat is, is a, there's a root cause of all the problems. And that's just, really, really bad science. I mean, I, I can't emphasize it enough. It is bad science and nutrition. And so what happens when people say, well, let's see what happens. Let's do the experiment. Let's see what happens when I only eat meat. And by and large, for the most part, people notice they get healthier. They get objectively, subjectively, and I mean, you know, almost without exception healthier. I mean, there's a very few people that, that don't see an improvement, uh, you know, when they go to this diet, particularly if they're on, you know, the standard, standard diet. And uh, I think, you know, what this shows to me in contrast to what the plant-based sort of advocates believe is that, you know, there's something else in the diet, you know, call, you know, call me crazy, but maybe this novel food, this, you know, the Twinkies, the Doritos, the processed food, the seed oils, the high fructose corn syrup that we've introduced into the human diet over the last hundred, hundred or so years is maybe that's the culprit for the modern disease epidemics and chronic disease we're seeing. And it's not a food we've been eating as a species for, you know, as homo sapiens for 300, 400,000 years. And as humans, going back to homo habilis, you know, maybe 3 million years. It just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't even pass the common sense test. And so, I mean, we, like, again, we, we couple that with really poor science or lack of science and, and, a, and a very heavily um, uh, financed and, you know, special interest, well, what do you call it? Special interest. It's a broad global interest in keeping us on a grain-based diet, keeping us on a highly processed, highly profitable diet uh, to the uh, detriment of the population at large. You know, and, and you know, like I said, people, you know, I mean, you know, they mollify people, here's some calories and we'll sprinkle some sugar on it. So it tastes good. 
and you just shut up and enjoy your, you know, your Cheerios and we'll, we'll give you your, you, we'll put you on your Lipitor when the time comes. And that's not right. And so I think more and more people, you know, I, I think the other thing is that social media is new. I mean, relatively, I mean, from, from when I am by no means the first guy ever recommended all meat diet. This has been going back hundreds of years. And I mean, you go back to Salisbury, you can go back to the 1700s, you can go back all through the 19th, you know, 1900s, 20th century, all kinds of people have recommended this diet. And with success, it's just that now we have the means by which to involve a lot more people and, and, and you know, and show the results. And, you know, it's like, it's hard to, you know, take a picture of somebody, this guy's 340 pounds and obese and sick. And now he's, you know, now he's 190 pounds and lean and happy. I mean, that, that, you know, you see it over and over again. At some point you say, that's not a placebo effect. Uh, you know, people say, well, it's calorie reduction or it's just getting rid of processed food or it's just because there's more protein or just because of this and that and that. And I say, I don't really care what you think the reason is. At the end of the day, it works. And that's what we should be concerned ourselves with. We should look at things that work for people and not be afraid to do that because of some unprovable theory about what you might die of when you're 78. I mean, it's, it's just, we just don't have the science to make that decision. And so I think we have to go with what we can objectively demonstrate in the short term. So um, very powerful. Um, I think if I look back, uh, I started following you on Twitter in 2017. And uh, I'd, I'd never heard of the carnivore diet before or an all meat diet. And what I had heard of was, because I'm, I'm an avid bodybuilding fan, um, and, you know, I know back in the day, Vince Garonda, uh, he was an advocate for the, the steak and eggs diet. And uh, that was like one of the staples of helping uh, his clients get ripped back in the 50s and the 60s. So clearly something was going on back then. As you said, this isn't something that's, that's new. But when I, it, it's interesting because when I had, so I, I followed you and you, and you know, you were coming up with all these really interesting um, data points and talking about how you're eating, you know, four to six pounds of ribeyes a day. And at that point I was, um, I was keto and I was chasing ketones, um, eating big giant, uh, you know, Mark Sisson primal diets, you know, what does he call that? The big effing salad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big effing salad with with tons of uh, MCT oil and olive oil in it, and I wasn't getting that much protein because I was I was chasing the ketones, and slowly but surely, um, you know, I was I was an avid runner at the time, and slowly but surely, what you were saying made so much sense. I had been a bodybuilder for years before this, and I just got the bug again, and I started eating meat. And I started with steak and eggs and the, I, I, I mean, you know, and because you deal with people who tell you this all the time, um, you know, your one of your first sites was meat heels and you get all those anecdote that all, all that anecdotal evidence. But I felt like a, I felt all of a sudden like I had superpowers, started putting on muscle. I could run longer. I looked great. It was getting more muscle tone again, slowly, but surely I ended up going full carnivore. And the, the one time I broke that rule for about two or three months and went back on having lots of nuts and, and lots more oil, um, I gained about probably 12 pounds of fat 
Um, and so the one thing, so I'm, where I'm getting to is um, what I found in my journey was that a lot of chasing ketones uh, was about fasting. And, you know, and I got into a habit of fasting. And what I wanted to ask you is, because I notice you don't fast, um, you feast, as, as you call it. Um, but I'm really curious, what are your thoughts on, on restricting calories for, uh, for health, for, um, you know, for having that, 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 that edge, you know, mental clarity versus, versus um, eating an all meat diet, say without, without fasting, uh, taking in the extra calories and the extra protein. What I know you, I'm, I'm really curious as to what your thoughts are there. Yeah. And that's, that's a great question. There's a lot of nuance and context that has to go into that particular question. So when we talk about restricting calories, you know, you can take it from I'm eating excess calories to now I'm eating an appropriate amount to I'm under eating. And I think you have to make that distinction. First of all, most people, and I know people complain about in a low carb space, if you mention the word calorie, but I do think there are many people that just eat too damn much. And whether it's fat, whether it's carbohydrates, whether it's food in general, and I think some of that has to do with the, the, the way we, you know, a lot of our food, you know, our hyper palatable, ultra processed food, if we're eating that, that clearly drives us to overeat. I think that, um, you know, uh, meal frequency can play into that. You know, we have this snacking mentality. I do think infrequent meals and when I talk about feasting, that also implies some sort of physiologic fast occurs because when you eat to satiety and you eat satiating nutritionally appropriate food, you shouldn't be hungry later, an hour later, or two hours later, for the most part. And that generally happens for most people. I think that, again, most people, when they do a carnivorous diet, um, particularly if they're coming from you know, a, a, a standard American diet or something like that, will find that the meat is so satiating. Uh, you know, it stimulates CCK or peptide YY or one of these other, you know, leptin or one of the other hormones that sort of feed back on appetite to the degree that they tend to eat an appropriate amount of calories uh, I think protein is a good thing. I think most people eat not enough protein. I think the RDA requirements are the bare minimum to not die, but I mean, it doesn't do anything for preserving or building lean muscle mass. I think we way, way under eat protein in the United States. Average protein consumption is somewhere between 12 and 16%, depending on who you see. I think that number is probably more appropriately up around at least 30% and then possibly higher if your goal is to put on a lot of muscle. Um, I think that, you know, uh, Fasting, you know, and I call it, and I make a distinction between physiologic fasting, you know, I'm just not hungry and therefore I'm not going to eat versus I'm setting a stopwatch. Um, you know, I think that's a little bit diet dependent. I think a meat-based diet, most people do that naturally anyway. I think there are some people that will benefit from that external cue. I think some people, even in the context of a meat-based diet, and I, and I say this, you know, having, you know, seen this experiences, talk to people to do this, they can overeat meat. I mean, it is possible to do. I know it's harder, but it is. I think that some of the problems we get into um, when we look at things like diabetic pathophysiology, I think that ultimately comes into, um, at, the, at the very core of what its nature is, it's basically too much energy going into the mitochondria. And I think they just, they can't keep up and they, they have incomplete oxidation and we get these incomplete intermediate, intermediaries of it intermediaries of metabolism that build up in the cells in the form of diacylglycerides and ceramides and some of these other things. And that leads to, you know, insulin signaling issues and then ultimately insulin resistance and so on and so forth. But 
I think that um, protein in itself, particularly eaten, eaten in conjunction with lifting, with muscular activity, is not driving aging. I don't think it's driving cancer. I think it's driving muscle growth, and I think that is a good thing. I think you distinguish that. I think when we look at the longevity studies, and remember, there's no real good human data at all on calorie restriction in human longevity. Uh, there are some animal studies, uh, but as many people pointed out, guys like Don Lehman and some of the other protein researchers, which are you know, tops in the field, have said, you know, a lab rat automatically overeats. I mean, that's just what they do. And when you restrict their calories, you know, it's not restricting them from, you know, what they would normally eat as on a wild as a wild animal. You know, it's a captive animal that would overeat, and you restrict them back to normal. So I think about the human eating normal amount of food um, doesn't need to restrict beyond that for the most part. I think that uh, I think you should get enough protein, uh, but I think you do. I mean, and I, and I would echo Stu Phillips, Jose Antonio, some of these other guys that say that should be accompanied by appropriate activity. And so sedentary behavior is just a losing situation regardless, regardless of what your diet is. So I think you need a couple both. I don't think you can separate the two. Um, I think that uh, fasting for some people, you know, if you're morbidly obese and you're starting there, you know, that might be a, that might be a good strategy for a while. If you're, if you're, if you're horribly diabetic, I think that can be a good strategy as well. I mean, there's literature that supports that, but I do think in, in the overall picture, the lifelong picture, you know, once you start getting into this sort of normal physiology, I mean, eating enough protein, eating enough food and not under eating, is just as important as not overeating. So I think there is a sort of place to be. And I think a natural, you know, I, I mean, a human appropriate diet is one that includes meat in there. And in some cases, a lot of meat to, to maybe even to exclusively meat. And, I, and again, I'm, well, I am the, you know, I guess, theoretically the face of this movement. I've always said, You've got to do, I, I'm very dogmatic about, you know, because people say, I want to, I want to be, I want to make carnivore successful. I want to be a carnivore. I said, I don't care what you want to be, just be healthy. <laughs> and, you know, and, and that's what you should want. You know, there's not, it's not a club. It's not a team. You got, you don't get a merit badge for, for eating ribeyes for a year. I mean, you, what you get hopefully is, you know, good body composition and good health. And that is the goal. I mean, keep the goal, the goal. Don't make some, some arbitrary things because some wacko on the internet only eats meat. Um, right. I, you know, I say that in tongue in cheek, but honestly, a lot of people get really good results eating a meat-based diet. They really do. Uh, but at the same time, I tell people, look, you should never just, you know, you, you shouldn't turn into, it into an ideology like we see on the other side, on the, on, the, on the vegan side, where it's all about, I can never have a morsel. And, you know, if, if my food touches some other food that was touched by an animal, oh my God, I'm going to sue the restaurant. I mean, that, that's just craziness. Uh, I mean, there are legitimately a few people out there that, you know, they can't tolerate really much in the way of plant food at all, and they get really sick. And I understand that, and I, and I accept that, and I tell people, that's what you need to do, that's what you need to do. Equally, I would say the majority of the people that have adopted this diet um, are about 95%. I mean, you know, some of them will have an avocado here and there, some of them will put some seasoning on their food, some of them will every once in a while have something off the plan. But and at the end of the day, if they're if they're doing well, I mean, that's... That's great. That's great. So, I mean, uh, you know, what, what, what about what's happened in the last three years? I mean, I think, you know, for whatever reason, and I'm not, you know, there, there were guys doing this 10 years ago, you know, zeroing in on health and this other group, Charles Washington and a bunch of others. I've, I've mentioned them many, many times. Yep. They were the ones that kind of I read about and said, I'm going to try this. But, you know, since I, I guess maybe just because of who I am as a physician, as a, as a fairly, you know, uh, 
prolific athlete, uh, or at least, you know, in, in the sports I, I'm in, uh, you know, it's it, the, the, the needle has moved, you know, in a local, in, certainly in a low carb commun- community, people are now like on a ketogenic diet. It's now the metagenic diet. You know, it's a keto carnivore. It's a carnivore keto. It's, you know, it's carnivore plus an avocado. These things have definitely shifted. The acceptance for meat in that community has made a 180. I think, I think they've gone, even Mark Sisson, who I've sat down with many times has said, look, I'm only going to give myself X amount of food and there ain't a lot of room for vegetables anymore. It's mostly meat based. And so he is, you know, he has kind of gone away from that big ass salad. I mean, you know, this is like we all should. I mean, when the evidence changes, when the results change, when the thinking changes, you should, you know, consider it as a possibility. And, you know, the nice thing is now we've got uh, David Ludwig from Harvard university doing a study on this. We're right in the middle of collection data for that right now. I mean, this is, this is a huge thing. The fact that it went through the IRB and got accepted as ethical is a huge win because now they're saying, okay, you can study carnivore diets now. And this is what we've been crying for. It's like, you know, because the, the, the vegetarian vegan advocates say, well, there's no science behind this. Why are you doing this dangerous diet? There's no studies. Well, guess what? Now there's going to be studies. And if the studies show what I believe they're going to show, and I don't know that they will, but if they do, then what are you going to say? You know, well, we don't like that study. Well, that study was, you know, what, I mean, it's, you'll never, you know, they're, they're going to dig into their trenches and they're never going to concede. But, you know, that argument that there's no studies will, will fall away, just like a lot of their other arguments. I think their ethical environmental arguments or health arguments are falling away. And, uh, you know, and it's not my favorite thing to argue with those people because it's like, it's like arguing with a, with a, with a wall. I mean, it's you know, you're not going to change it. Well, um, you would fool me based on some of your, um, you know, some of your retorts and replies to, to some of the extreme uh, responses that you get from, uh, from some vegans who come at you. You, you like you said, you're not a wallflower. Um, and it, it almost looks like you do enjoy uh, kind of going at it with them. It's very entertaining. I, I, I don't mind pointing out the idiocy or the, 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 the sort of the uh, misdirection or in that sort of stuff. But as far as going back and forth, I did that early on. And I mean, I always came to the conclusion that I, you know, I just asked this question. I said, Hey man, if your health depended on you eating an animal product, would you do it? And they would say no. And I'd say, look, I got nothing more to talk to you about. I mean, you're just not a rational person, but, but I mean, as far as, you know, somebody puts up some silliness, you know, like, you know, meat is murder or some crap and I'll just say, or, you know, we were, all the, the animals eat all the crops on the planet. And, and it clearly, that's, there's, this is not even, even close to being true. And I, I'll point out the other stuff and say how, how ridiculous or how stupid they are with that argument. But as far as like, you know, spending my time, you know, typing back and forth, like I did on Twitter when I first got into this, I just don't have the time for that, nor the, nor the desire. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, you talk about how what's been going on over the, over the past three years, how it's kind of gone from a, ketogenic diet to a, a metogenic diet is, I mean, to the degree that, um, you know, you're talking about someone who was a major fasting proponent, a uh, guy by the name of Jeffrey Wu, who's the founder of uh, the nutrition company HVMN. Mm-hmm. Uh, they make the, uh, the, that uh, drink, component, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah the and, I, and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I interviewed him. Uh, for our podcast. And he was even talking about the fact that he doesn't, you know, he really doesn't do those three day fasts anymore. And on top of that, um, when I asked him about what's the ratio of his, of his diet, protein to fat, he told me he eats mostly meats now. Um, so, 
you know, it, it's just incredible what's going on out there and how much steam this is gathering amongst, um, amongst not just those who are interested in performance, but um, I mean, really well-studied, well-researched people are looking at this uh, and they're, you know, they're saying that there's not, there's something to this. Um, and it's not just the feeling I'm getting. It's actually, it's in the research. It's out there. Um, it, you know, it's, it, it's, you know, there's massive anecdotal evidence on this. And now, as you're saying, there's going to be hardcore studies. Uh, I'm assuming that's not an epidemiological study. It's a proper study. So it's, 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 it's not an, it's not a interventional trial at this point. It's for, you know, the first one is just to see, uh, is it sustainable? Okay. You know, and, and we want it's a, it's a it's a sustainability, and then we're going to look at we're going to assess the health of those people that have done it for greater than six months. Uh, once that's done, you know, it's step one, and then it's then you, then you start looking at intervention trials. And so the first thing is to get it accepted as a reality in the literature, and then you can start doing the intervention trials. And so that's that's and I I don't have any part in that study other than helping promote it, helping to find participants. Uh, but as far as you know. Uh, analyzing the data. I mean, I, I put some input in design. I, you know, I showed them stuff that I had already done, and they're going to kind of mimic some of that stuff, uh, as I've done, you know, a lot of, lots and lots of surveys in the population. But, uh, uh, you know, it, they, they, they did something very similar with the type 1 diabetics, this type 1 grit group, social media group that they did. And it was published in Pediatrics, which is a very high-impact journal, and it was the number one downloaded article in the journal. So I suspect the same thing will happen with this diet. It'll be very controversial. I'm sure guys like Neil Bernard and the PCRM will be lobbying whatever journal to, pub to publish it, to retract it, and you know, all that nonsense of suppression of, you know, suppression of discussion. You know, it's, their idea is if, if you don't, if you disagree with me, you're not gonna, we don't want your voice to be heard. And I think that's uh, very, very dangerous. Uh, and hopefully we, we, we realize that. You know, we saw what happened when Nutrix came out in 2019 with their six studies in the annals of internal medicine that said red meat is not a carcinogen. There's no evidence, so strong evidence to suggest it would be. And they lost their, their heads blew up and everybody in the community is like, oh, we need, we need to petition the FTC to, you know, to, to you, know, <laughs> you know, force them to retract their article. And thank good for, good for the annals of internal medicine. They didn't back down. They didn't do that. They let the study stand. And I think that's important. Um, you know, get so kind of uh, looping back just for a moment as a segue into something else um, regarding fasting. Um, you know, I noticed that I think you've mentioned something along these lines that it's that eating protein or eating meat, um, you know, as far as calories are concerned, that it actually becomes self regulating. I noticed that if I eat two meals a day. If I eat steak, if I don't do, cause usually I'm doing one meal a day. Um, the funny thing is I'll, so I'll do three pounds of, of steak, uh, in the evening. And that's, I'm probably going like, um, you know, a 22 hour window before I get there. Uh, so there's a two hour window left where I eat. Uh, but there are times when I will have a steak during the day uh, so say I have a pound and a half during the day, I find that I can't eat more than a pound and a half for that last meal. So no matter what I do, it seems like I'm ending up one way or another eating three pounds of red meat. And that's maybe just the place where I'm, but it's self-regulating. My weight never goes up and it never goes down. Um, and so um, the, and I don't know if it's the meat itself or the protein satiation 
you you might know better. But what I'm curious about is the reason I, I you know, um, I wanted to just mention fasting for a moment because most people fast. Um, well, most people used to fast for longevity purposes because of that study about calorie restriction in the rats and they live longer. So, okay, calorie restriction. Um, but I've heard you talk a lot about longevity with respect to protein. So can you tell us your thoughts on the need for animal protein with respect to living a long life? Because there, you know, that's another myth that, you know, that needs to be busted potentially. A, a lot of the information we've been fed would have you believe uh, that um, longevity is dependent on the elimination of meat and animal fats from the diet. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, again, I would say there's no there's no conclusive or strong evidence in human beings that suggests that in any way, shape, or form. In fact, uh, you know we can draw the, the uh, you know we can and again I don't want to be too inferential here, but we know that strength mm -hmm. uh, and lean muscle mass is highly correlated with longevity. You know, the Honolulu longevity study showed that uh, adults in midlife that were in the upper quartile for strength at about a 250% increased likelihood of making it to a hundred versus those in a lower, you know, lower, uh, quartiles. And so strength again, uh, I mean, obviously there's things that go into strength, there's training, but animal, animal protein supports that better than any other source of food. I mean, this is, this is clear. Uh, animal protein is superior to plant protein. I know that plant plate-based advocates to say, well, you can mix and match and make it happen. But even in the cases, and there was a recent study that came out, even in the cases where you, actually match, you know, the, the essential amino acids, you know, gram for gram, plant protein versus animal protein, plant protein still failed to produce uh, the results, you know, that we saw with animal protein to the degree of about a 40% loss of, uh, you know, uh, amino acids that's showing up, you know, actually usable uh, that are bioavailable. And it has to do with some of the anti-nutrients that are in plants that kind of prevent the absorption and compete with the absorption um, I think that, you know, the, the one human data point that was done by Levine and Longo looking at high protein diets in midlife showing a negative correlation with uh, longevity and increased cancer rates uh, was widely, widely criticized and heavily criticized by, you know, a whole host of, you know, protein researchers, Stu Phillips, Don Lehman, and, and a whole host of other guys. They wrote a nice long critique of that. And really what happens, they went through the NHANES data and they just cherry picked, either they cherry picked what they wanted or they weren't clear on how to use the data or they, uh, you know, just intentionally, you know, did that, you know, and, and, and then, you know, the, the, the funny thing was, it was like, well, in midlife, you can't eat a lot of protein, but when you get older, you need to eat a lot more. And then you, so that correlation, like for some magic reason, as soon as you hit 50 or 55, boom, you got to start eating a lot of protein, right. which doesn't even make sense. I mean, it, you know, but that's the only data in, in, in humans and all the, all the rat studies out there um, don't correlate to humans very well. Uh, the, the fruit flies, the, the nematode studies, I mean, that you can't use that data to, to show it in humans. There's never been a study that I'm aware of that looks at an animal that eats a meat-based diet, a carnivorous diet, when you restrict their diet, there's no evidence that shows they eat longer. Now, there's studies in dogs. If you feed dogs kibble and you restrict the kibble, they live longer, but it's restricting their natural diet, which would be like a wolf, which would be a more carnivorous type diet. So that data is not even out there in animal data or animal studies. 
And, you know, it's, it's clear there's study after study after study that shows that uh, lean muscle mass, preserving that strength correlates with longevity, function, absence of, you know, the protection from cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, diabetes, on and on and on. And so we know in order to get there, you need to eat adequate protein. You're not going to, you're not going to put on muscle when you're eating, you know, you know, 40 grams of protein a day, as, as some of these people might suggest, which is just abysmally low. Uh, you know, the average American, 15%, I think 30%, 40%, probably better in my view. I mean, and I do think, and this is the other thing that people talk about mTOR stimulation, you know, protein will stimulate mTOR, particularly leucine and, and to some degree arginine, right? These are, these are amino acids. Um, but what they fail to mention is that the bigger drivers of mTOR stimulation are insulin and then a caloric surplus. And so they just kind of disregard that, you know, what's, the, what's causing insulin to be high? Well, it's chronic eating. It's chronic eating every 30 minutes of, you know, particularly these high carbohydrate snacks. We know the carbohydrates have a much more powerful uh, uh, effect on insulin than, than anything else. And so if we're eating a high carb diet around the clock, eating every two to three hours, our insulin level is going to be higher. Therefore, our mTOR level is going to be higher. And we look at the people that eat that way. We look at, we look at you know, you, you, just gotta, you just gotta go into a grocery store, look at somebody's shopping cart, and then look at them. And, you know, it's like, Hey, it's not rocket science here. Uh, but, you know, there, I think there is, uh, like I said, the nutrition science, in my view, is, is not well done. I mean, it's not that the people are not well-meaning. It's just what you're asking them to, to, to tell us, I don't think is answerable, quite honestly. I mean, you know, there's, you know, when people say there's no long-term studies on a carnivore diet and, and health outcomes, you know, whether you're going to die, well, you know, whether you're going to live a long life, well, there's no long-term data on any diet. I mean, there's no... There's never been a diet where we've actually tested. I mean, there's there's observations. Well, well, you think these people eat this way, and therefore, if we ask them to fill out a food frequency test, which 80% of the time they estimate fruits and vegetables wrong. I mean, right? What kind of what kind of crappy data is that? You're putting the crappiest data in the world in there and trying to make inferences, and then you, and then the output is some tiny tiny relative risk change. You're, you're making inferences based on that. I mean, it's it's just it's it's really just you know, kind of almost laughable that we try to use that for, for policymaking. So how did, how did we get here? Because, you know, I was, I was, I was looking at some of the data um, and I, I read one, uh, one research note that said uh, that in the 19th century, so in the 1800s, the average annual consumption of meat was anywhere between 150 to 200 pounds per person uh, in the 19th century. And you, now, uh, what it is today, I mean, they're, they're recommending you don't eat more, more than four ounces of, of, four ounces of, of meat uh, per day. Um, and so, like, how how did this how did we get here? How did we go from um, even in my grandfather's time, all they, they you know they ate meat, they ate lots of meat. Um, so what happened? How did, how did this happen? Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, if you look, it's even worse than that. If you look at like the Eat Lancet Commission, who's got this global diet for global health or whatever they want to do. I mean, they're recommending seven grams of beef a day. Seven grams. I mean, that, that would fit on your pinky fingernail. I mean, it's, you know, that, that's what they're allowing you. And it's like a, like a one, one point 
two, five eggs per week or something ridiculous. I mean, it's just ridiculous what they want people to eat. And it's, you know, we're going to, you instead you should eat uh, 57% of your calories should come from processed grains, sugar, seed oils, and soy. Uh, that is what we're being recommended. Now, if we look at the state of the American diet today, uh, the average American eats about 56 pounds of, of beef per year, which is about 2.4 ounces a day, which is a, a very small amount. Even in 1970, we were eating, you know, we were now eating 56, 1970, we were eating like 95 pounds. Uh, and, and that's, you know, like I said, I, I, don't, I haven't seen the, the data we show in showing 150, but I mean, if you look at places like Hong Kong, which leads the world in meat consumption per capita, they're eating like a pound and a half of meat per day. Uh, they live longer than anyone else on the planet. They have the highest IQ of anyone else on the planet. Are they related? Is it strictly correlational? I mean, you could certainly make that argument, but I mean, it doesn't paint the picture that meat is a bad guy when you got the longest living people on the planet eating the most meat. Um, I think when we go back to the origins of nutrition science, particularly in the, in the U.S. back in 1917, when uh, the American uh, the Academy of American Academy of Dietetics was founded, I think, was, I think that's what they were called back then. Uh, this is the, this is the origins of nutrition science. This was this was founded primarily by Seventh Day Adventist groups, who, whose religious mission was to convert people to a vegetarian diet. And they started the, the nutrition science thing. They've been they've been part of that in in, in small uh, capacity ever since that time. Even though during the like the World Health Organization 2015 declaration that red meat was a carcinogen, a class two carcinogen, just meat class one, a significant percentage of those panelists on the IARC were Seventh Day Adventists, vegans, vegetarians for ethical reasons. Mm -hmm. That conflict of interest was never revealed. It was never. It was never it was never admitted to a committee who dissented like Dr. David Clearfield who said, Hey, look, we got a lot of vegetarians on the menu on the on the committee. We should disclose that. And they said, No, 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 we don't need to disclose that. They frankly shut down any discussion that would not reach the conclusion that they wanted to reach. They they dismissed all data that said that red meat is not a carcinogen. Uh, thankfully, you know, 29 Nutrix did a larger study and basically came out and said, Hey. There's no evidence. I mean, there's no strong evidence. I mean, it's, it's weak at best that red meat has any role in cancer, heart disease, or any of these other things it's been sort of blamed on. So I think um, there's bias, you know, from, from, from that, that part. And then, you know, it's, it's I think industry, um, you know, seed oil companies, you know, by going back to Procter & Gamble, giving the American Heart Association a million dollars back in the 1920s. That's a lot of money back then, by the way. Uh, you know, trying to trying to just get their products in front of people, and and you know, and they're very good at um, marketing and paying the right people and, and getting the message out there. Same thing with the sugar lobby when they, you know, when they you know, sort of bribe Fred Stair from Harvard to sort of demonize fat and and promote sugar. Um, I, I think there's just so many conflicts of interest there, and I think you know, it's just who won the battle, who who spent the most money, who was willing to, uh, you know pay to get their message out there and we're reaping the benefits. And it's been, a, you know, it's been an organized, systematic, sort of almost a brainwashing of a generation or two. You know, our kids are being exposed now to cartoons that say, oh, eating meat is bad for the planet. Eating meat is bad for the animal. You know, you're hurting animals when you eat meat. I mean, I, you know, it's, in, it's on children's programming, cartoons. It's, you know, it's everywhere. And so we, we just have, uh, I think, vested interests. I mean, I think when it comes to food production, you know, animal products are expensive. They're expensive to... Uh, produce, uh, they're time consuming, uh, the profitability is not that high uh, mm -hmm. relative to other things. And I think the big, these big companies just want 
they want easy, easy money and they want to, they want to make profitable, cheap, highly processed food, throw some vitamins in there, say it's plant-based and here you go, you're saving the planet. And it's, it's just, unfortunately, you know, it benefits their pockets, pocketbooks and not our health. So there has been a lot of talk about, um, about laboratory grown meat. So lab grown meat. And, um, I mean, first, I guess what I'm curious about is, do you, do you foresee a time uh, where, given all of the interests in uh, keeping meat off our plates, and there's a lot, of, a lot of various interests, as you pointed out, you know, a few of them, um, but there's a lot of interest and a lot of money in pushing meat off of our plates and, and substituting it with something else. And what I, do you, do you see a time or do you foresee the real possibility of maybe 50 years from now or a hundred years from now of there being no more, um, whether it's through laws, regulation, taxes, uh, or, or whatever, do you foresee a time where there will, where we will not have the right to eat meat, or it'll be taxed out of existence, or it'll be regulated out of existence in favor of meat substitutes and lab-grown meat? Do you see a time where that might come? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very plausible possibility, and it might be, it might be 20, 30 years down the road. I mean, I think if you know, Mark, if, if left to their own devices, I mean, even the, even the major meat companies, the big meat packers in the U.S., Tyson, Cargill, Marfrig, and JBS, they are all investing in the alternative meat markets because, again, their bottom line is making money. They don't care what product they're selling. Uh, they just want to make the most money. That's, that's business. And if, you know, they can convince the populace that, that, that this cheaper product is just as good or perhaps better uh, whether it's true or not, they're going to do that, particularly if they can make more money. So I, I, I don't see that being an unrealistic scenario at all. Now, the problem with lab-grown meat, as it stands today, is, you know, the arguments that they're making for it, it's more environmentally sustainable, it's more ethical, so on and so forth, are complete garbage. I mean, if we look at the environmental side of it, uh, or even the ethical side of it, you know, right now it's dependent upon something called fetal bovine serum, you know, and this is blood from a fetal cow. So the cow, in order to obtain that, they have to slaughter a pregnant, pregnant cow, take the fetus while still alive, aspirate, you know, blood from its heart without anesthetic. So it doesn't, you know, you know, mess with the serum. And then they put that in the media and then they have to keep replacing that over and over again as these cells grow. And so, it, you know, you have to keep killing all these cow fetuses. That's just to get the growth media. So they have the right hormonal milieu to grow cells. And now we got to feed these cells. I mean, they just don't grow without food. I mean, you don't, you, our muscles don't grow without food, right? We know that. So what are you going to feed these? Where's the protein going to come from? It's not, there's not some fairy that flies in and sprinkles protein dust over it. They have to get that protein from somewhere. And where they're going to get it from are plant-based proteins that are grown from monocrops, soybeans, peas, you know, whatever, lentils. So they have to grow that. They have to just degrade the soil to grow all these massive quantities of protein and realize that cows are turning grass, stuff that you and I can't eat, that just grows wild into their protein. You know, and then some of them are supplemented with grain at the end. But I mean, by and large, most of their meat is coming from grass. To make lab-grown meat, you've got to, make, you've got to get that protein from these soybeans, 
these peas or something else that you're growing that's going to destroy the ground, the the, the uh, uh, you know the, the, the environment. And then you know, remember these these cells don't have immune systems, and so how do they fight off infections? Well, they don't. So what do you got to do? You got to bathe them in antibiotics. And people are complaining about antibiotics, and they're in their, in a cow. If, 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 it's, if it's sometimes injected with an antibiotic, oh my God, we don't do it, but we're going we're gonna to accept that we've got these, these cells that are, that are literally swimming in antibiotics uh, at least some part of their existence, perhaps the entire time. You know, certainly when they're in the bioreactor, um, maybe not, maybe it's sterile, but as soon as you take them out, you got you to gotta, you gotta make sure they don't get infected because if it gets contaminated, the whole batch has to go into trash. And then you got to talk about, well, how do you fuel those bioreactors? Well, a cow is fueled by solar power. I mean, there's no, there's no, you don't plug a cow into the electric grid. I mean, they're out there munching grass and, you know, with, with, you know, particularly these grass fed ones. And now as we see these regeneratively grown cows, uh, that's even, you know, even a net carbon, carbon negative. I mean, we're putting the carbon back on soil. But, so we're using fossil fuels. Uh, we're, we're using, you know, degradative agricultural practices. We're killing cows anyway. Um, and we're less efficient. And, you know, we might be able to get the price point down. To, to where it's cheaper than regular beef, but at what cost are we doing it? And I don't think it's uh, something. And then you know, there's some companies say we might be able to do it without the fetal bovine serum at some point. We don't know. We don't know what those cells will grow into. Mm-hmm. And then also it's like, who decides what cells you put in there? What mixture? What are we going to include? Because they, they might be able to say, we're going to do it with no saturated fat. And maybe you, maybe that's not a good idea. We don't know. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of debate around that stuff. And so I, you know, I have major concerns about that. I'm not going to sign up to eat that. I think you can let, if somebody wants to eat that for 20 years and we can see what their health outcomes are, they can run that experiment because they're not going to do the experiments on humans. I can tell you that. Same thing with the Beyond Meat stuff. I mean, or the, or the particularly the Impossible Burger with the soy leg hemoglobin, which humans have never, ever eaten before on, in the history of Earth. And now we're just going to, you know, we're going to do a rat study on it and say, oh, the rats didn't die, even though some of them did get sick, by the way. Uh, okay. you know, are there kidney issues and some other things, but, but yeah, that's fine. FDL is clear for human consumption. We'll eat it for 10, 15 years. Meanwhile, all the dogs are getting dilated cardiomyopathy from eating the pea protein, but yeah, we'll put pea protein in beyond meat burgers, let humans eat it for 20 years and we'll see what happens, you know? And meanwhile, you know, we've been eating meat for 3 million years <laughs> and, you know, I think it's well tested that, that it's, uh, it's, it's, it's tolerated pretty well, but you know, like I said, we put high fructose corn syrup in the diet. We put Crisco in the diet. We put, you know, all this other garbage and, you know, we're sick. We're a sick population. And it's, it's, it's really frustrating. You know, I, I kind of, I mean, I don't know. I, sometimes it just pisses me off that I go to the store and there's so many damn sick fat people. And it's not that I don't like them. And, I, and, I, and I'm not mad at those people for existing. I'm just saying our society, our food production system has made that happen. And it's our fault. And we're just, we just don't want to do anything about it because we're too happy you know, just give me my, you know, give me my Krispy Kreme donut. It tastes good. And I'll, I'll be quiet. I mean, this is, we placate the masses with tasty food. And, and you know, as long as you, as long as you've got the money and, and, you know, it's cheap enough where you can feed people food that they like, eh, no one's going to complain, you know, right. So we'll face the consequences later. Well, um, you know, I guess one person's uh, utopia is another's dystopia. Um, I sure hope that is not the future. Uh, but uh, I, it doesn't I guess- have to be. Yeah, I don't think it has to be. But I think it's. I think if, if nothing is done, if people don't get off their hands, quit sitting on their hands, 
it will it, it very could could well likely be you know i'm talking 30 40 50 years from now i mean i'm it's, you know i'll probably be either dead or demanded by then you know <laughs> maybe not maybe i'll be kicking around at 100 and still going strong but you know i worry about my children and my children's children and that sort of stuff and i think these are the guys that are really going to not know what I mean, there are literally kids these days that start out and they've never had a healthy day in their life. I mean, they've been metabolically sick from since you in utero. And I mean, they, you know, by the time they're eight years old, they're morbidly obese or they're diabetic or pre-diabetic. And I mean, that's all they ever know. And are we going to have a whole generation of kids like that? I mean, I'm, I certainly am concerned that's an issue. Well, um, I mean, there's, you know, it's like every single argument against meat, it turns out that it's actually the opposite. It's, it's actually in, in every instance, you know, where they say meat is, is bad for you. I mean, you name it, you know, all the chronic diseases that it's related to, uh, supposedly they blame me. They even blame diabetes, clearly a, a, a sugar, uh, you know, overabundance of sugar and carbohydrate uh, issue if it's not genetically inherited, of course, but can be exacerbated by, but I mean, even that they blame on, on meat. So it's like, um, another myth that I'd love you to dispel, um, cause I've heard you talk about it is and one, another one of the big issues that you hear is, um, save the environment, save the climate, um, stop eating meat. And you're doing a good thing for the environment, you're doing a good thing for the climate. But once again, actually, it turns out um, from listening to you and the guests on on uh, on your podcast, uh, I've learned that actually cows can actually save the environment and save the climate. And it, it, you know, can you can you explain how that works? Yeah, I mean, so. First of all, you know, we have to put things in context. I mean, I mean, this is the current situation, you know, through most of the world. Uh, well, I'll start with the U.S. So in the United States, 95, 98 percent of our cows are finished in the feedlot. OK, there are some negatives associated with that, clearly. Um, however, when we look at the big picture with U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, you know, there's other there's other issues. There, but the main one that people worry about with, with, with regard to climate change, saving the planet, has to do with raising global climate temperatures. Um, and I know there's some people that think that's nonsense or whatever, but in the framework of that argument, um, if we look at EPA data and it's, you go to epa.gov, you can get this information, agriculture in the entire agricultural sector in the United States puts out 9% of our greenhouse gases. Um, of that 5% is plant agriculture, 4% is animal agriculture, and then of that 4%, only half of that, or, or a total of about 2% is cattle. So 2% of our greenhouse gases come from cattle in the United States. Um, you contrast that to the transportation sector, which is about 28%, the, agri the uh, industrial sector is about 30%, the energy sector is about another 20, 27%. Those are the big drivers, the fossil fuels. And, and you know, the, the animal agriculture is a small, small fraction. And so, even the healthcare sector is 10%. So the healthcare sector is five times as much greenhouse gases as cows are. And so what, what, what argument I'll make is unhealthy people are not sustainable environmentally. So if you have people that are unhealthy, that are constantly patronizing the, the, the healthcare system, they're, they're contributing and growing this greenhouse gas segment in the healthcare system. 
Um, but you know, when we look at cows, I mean, most of the greenhouse gases associated with cows have to do with methane. Um, we see that methane has a higher global warming potential, somewhere between 28 and 30, 30 times what CO2 does. But what people fail to mention is the half-life is very short. It's only up in the atmosphere for a fraction of the time that CO2 from fossil fuels are up there. Fossil fuels are up there for 1,000, 2,000 years, whereas methane may turn around within a decade, which you know, seems like a long time, but it's a, fra you know, it's a, it's a blip when it comes to the geologic scale, time scale. Um, or you know, climate time change. And so um, we also know that when we calculate methane from cows and, and try to, and, and, and the known sources of methane on earth, you know, we say cows and termites and natural gas and, you know, in, in wetlands and, and rice production. And some of these things, uh, you know, we're seeing that what this is called a bottom-up calculation. So we say, well, we know we, we can we can measure how many cows there are and how much we can say an average cow is going to put out X amount of, of methane and we, can, and we can convert that to CO2 equivalents and we can multiply it by the number of cows that are known to be on the earth. And then we'll just come up with the number. The problem is they keep discovering more and more methane sources. Every, it seems like every six months or they say, wow, there's another huge methane leak that we never knew about. So the cow fraction keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller as we discover more and more things. And this is confirmed by atmospheric sampling, like people like NASA and some of these other organizations have done atmospheric sampling. This is a top-down approach. So what you do is you say, well, how much methane is in the atmosphere? We can measure that. And we know that methane in the atmosphere has gone up over the last three or four decades to, to a significant amount. But what they can do is they can they can take isotopic measurements. They can see, you know, they can look at the different carbon skeletons and you know, it's carbon isotopes and say, these came from rice, these came from cows, this came from, you know, cars, this came from natural gas, this came from here. And what they're finding is what's actually in the atmosphere is almost none of it that's this this causes increases coming from cattle. Uh, so it's all this these recent increases in, in methane in the atmosphere coming from these other sources that are not coming from agriculture. And it makes sense. You, know, you think about it, in the United States, we had anywhere between 30 million and 60 million bison roaming around, not to include all the elk and deer and all the other wild animal. We, we've had the same number of ruminants. And in fact, years ago, maybe, you know, before the, you know, the last uh, ice age ended, when we were, when we had the megafauna, we probably had orders of magnitude more ruminants animals running around, you know, belching and farting. And we didn't have, you know, you know, runaway climate, you know, temperature change. In fact, it was cold. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's, again, it doesn't pass the common sense test uh, just because we can't measure it accurately. Um, so that's, you know, that is, you know, kind of one of the things that we talk about the, the current situation. But if we talk about what is possible, which is a more exciting part, you know, one of the things we look at is soil. Uh, you know, how much soil is it, how much carbon is in the soil? And as, as we deplete our soils further and further, and some people will argue that we've got 60 harvests left and we're going to run out of soil. Uh, the topsoil has been eroded, eroded, eroded by, you know, 10 feet or something like that in some parts of the world. Um, the only way to restore that topsoil is to put carbon back in the ground. And the most effective way to do that, and there are studies after studies that are now coming out, is by doing using animals in a, you know, in an appropriate way, in a, in a regenerative way where you basically, you herd them up, you, you have them all eat in one patch for one day, and then you move them. And you just keep moving them every day, once, once a day, or once every two days, you move them. And what that does is it quickly restores the, the soil carbon. And in fact, Alan Williams, Professor Alan Williams, who I interviewed not long ago, just gave me data showing that if 
if the United States were to convert 40% of its herd, you know, to regenerative stock grazing, right now we're about 5%, but if we were to get up to 40%, we could completely offset all carbon emissions from all sectors of the United States. That's all the, ca all the ca cars, all the, all the natural gas, all the, all the industrial stuff, all the energy sector, just if we were to do that. And do we have land to do that? Absolutely we do. In fact, by his calculations, um, you know, right now we process about 30 million head of cattle a year in the United States to feed ourselves. We could easily do 50 million head of cattle, you know, run, run in a regenerative fashion. And that's not even with, with uh, you know, stacked integration of animals where you run cows and then sheep and pigs and chickens and goats and, you know, in different crops. So, I mean, there, there's so much more we could do with that if we have the desire uh, to do that rather than saying, oh, we're just going to, we're just going to, we're going to let these global mega companies feed us synthesized slop and pretend it's healthy for the environment when it clearly is going to destroy the soil. That is, that is unbelievable. I mean, that is the, so the actual truth is that if we increased the herd and and we raised more cattle, then all the climate change issues that are discussed with respect to uh, carbon emissions could be offset, and the whole and, and the whole problem, as some describe it, would be solved. Is there are, yeah, there are that that is that's that's just to that. There are many people say, and, and not only that. I mean, you know, we look at soil runoff, topsoil runoff, and we look at water. You know, uh, you know de desert desertification. Um, what happens is when you have poor soils, organic carbon in the, in, the, in the topsoil, the rain doesn't absorb, it just runs off and it washes the topsoil and it washes all the herbicides and pesticides out into the Gulf of Mexico, you get the dead zones. By doing regenerative cell agriculture, you don't need any herbicides, you don't need any pesticides, you retain the topsoil, you don't have the soil water runoff. Uh, you would solve so many, so many environmental problems if you did that, and yes, you could do it with more animals. In fact, it would, it would lend itself to having more animals, which would then yield more food. And the other thing that's nice uh, is it's actually more profitable for the rancher to do it that way, you know, once they adopt that. And so more and more ranchers are seeing this. They're getting unplugged from the, uh, the, the subsidy, uh, you know, herbicide, pesticide, big, big, big uh, petrochemical companies to raise that stuff because they, you know, they, they take out these huge loans, they get sucked into the system and they just kind of get stuck. But the ones that make that transition that say, hey, look, I'm going to take a year or two. I'm going to not use herbicides, not use pesticides. I'm going to re, uh, I'm going to re, I'm going to improve the, the uh, you know, the uh, pasture on my land. I'm going to make it more uh, productive. You know, these guys are seeing, I'm seeing guys, some of them are saying up to 800%, you know, increase in their production capacity. They can run, you know, anywhere you know, up to eight times as many animals on the same acreage. You know, these guys that are, you know, they're doing three, four, five times as many cattle on the same number of 500 acres that they had. And so that, that means five times as much meat, you know, <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, more profitability for them and less cost, which is, which is the really neat solution there. So again, that's my, you know, understanding of talking. I've talked to lots and lots of guys in this space researchers, people that are actually proving it and doing it every day. It's kind of, it's, again, it's been anecdotal for years, but now the studies are coming in, Alan Williams, Richard Teague, some of these other guys that are, you know, Roundtree, some of these guys that are doing, Jason Roundtree, all these guys that are doing this actual research, uh, Will, Will uh, Harris at White Oaks Pasture, they are proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is a way to go. 
And I think this is something that more need more people, you know, if you're going to be a, if you're going to be eating for the environment and you're like, well, I think I'm just going to eat plant-based because I think it helps the environment. That is a losing strategy. Mm. If you really want to help the environment, you would get behind it, particularly if you have the economic uh, capacity to, to pick and choose your diet. Now, many people in the world don't have that. Most people that go on a plant-based diet in the world do it out of desperation. You know, if you look at most third world, they're on a, you know, grain heavy diet and they pray if they can get an egg, you know, if they get some, some meat, meat or an egg or a little bit of milk, they're happy as can be. But most of the time they're eating some cheap, you know, cheap grain product. And, uh, but the, the ones that live in Western society that are out there virtue signaling about how healthy they are and how much they're protecting the planet, if they really wanted to protect the planet and make a difference, they would get behind this regenerative animal agricultural system. That, that's absolutely fantastic and mind blowing. Um, I want to switch gears uh, for the rest of our time together. Um, and I want to, I want to talk about you as, uh, as an individual, as uh, an inspirational individual, because you're a very inspiring guy. And it, in, in it, and I mean, in a gen, in like a genuine way, like you're not getting up there giving these big motivational speech speeches, but the, you know, the way you have, again, you're, you're the de facto face of this movement, right? I mean, it's just happened. Um, and, you know, it, it's hard to say, oh, this person's the leader of it. This, I mean, you clearly are um, the key proponent of this message. And you, you're, also, you're also a very physical individual. Like, I, I, you know, I watch, I see you train uh, when you post on Instagram, train like an animal. Right. I mean, and, and uh, you've been a competitive athlete and a world record holder. I think if I've got this right, you hold world records in the 500 meter row. Um, you've competed in powerlifting and strongman events. Uh, you've played semi-professional rugby in New Zealand, I believe, uh, where you faced off of some of them big, big boys on the All Blacks. Uh, and you continue to train just, I mean, to this day. Uh, you're, you're training at a very intense, intense, intense pace. Uh, and I think you're still chasing some world records out there. So um, what drives you to, com to compete first? What drives you to compete in sport? Uh, you know, I think it's some degree of mental illness. I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I honestly, you know, I don't know. I've just, I think, you know, probably maybe because I didn't get into it early enough. I didn't get burned out. I mean, you know, there's some people that, you know, they're so successful athletes early on. And I've, and I've, I've trained with Olympic champions and I see these guys and they, you know, they, they, they reach the pinnacle of their life success at 27 years of age. They set a world record of the medal in the Olympics and then nothing they can do will ever reach that. They, they, then they give up. And, and I, since I never had that, I'm always trying to, I'm like, I'm always trying to say, I'm not going to give up yet till I reach my goal, whatever that goal may be. And it always seems to change. Um, I, you know, I just, I guess it became part of my identity at some point. You know, I, I, I kind of got used to being the, the, the athlete that, you know, that's, you know, I mean, for good or bad, it's, it's part of my self-worth, I guess, is what I feel like is when I'm successful as an athlete, successful physically, I just feel better about myself. Um, I also, you know, I mean, I guess I've got a little bit of stuff to prove. I mean, I'm like saying, hey, I'm on a meat-based diet and guess what? You can be pretty damn good as an athlete. And so I, I, I sit there and kind of, you know, kind of give the middle finger to people. So you can't do that. And I, and I sit there and I do it regularly pretty much every day. And I, you know, like I said, 
uh, as somebody who's in their 50s, or in his 50s, rather, <laughs> I, I uh, you know, I try and sort of say, look, there's no reason to be limited. You know, I, I truly believe, I try to walk the walk. I mean, when I say, I don't think, you know, aging for the most part, for most of us should be associated with disability. I just don't accept back pain, a big belly, you know, sore joints, uh, you know, low, low energy, low libido. I don't accept that as normal. Uh, and I don't think anyone should. And so, like I said, if I'm going to say that, I want to at least sort of walk the walk. Because there's a lot of people that talk the talk, as you know. And then you look at them, you're like, well, why aren't you taking your own damn advice then? So, I mean, if I, you know, like I said, I, I think it's, it gives me more credibility to, to sit there and say, look, you can be healthy, strong, and fit. And yes, I'm actually doing that. And so what I'm doing is actually working. And so um, I, you know, I, I actually, you know, honestly, when I'm in the middle of training art, I feel good. I mean, this is when I feel like I'm alive. I mean, you know, it's kind of like, you know, there's certain things, you know, certain parts of life where you're, you know, I said sometimes life doesn't start till your heart rate reaches 100 or whatever, 150 sometimes. You know? It's kind of like, you know, it's, it's, you know, you just feel invigorated, you know, whether you're running from a bear or you're training to break a PR or something, you're sprinting, you know, that, that feeling is just um, hard to, uh, hard to top. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what kind of drives me. Um, so, I mean, you, you clearly have a, uh, a competitive nature. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I do. I do. Almost pathologic. Pathologic. <laughs> do you see that? Does, does that spill over into like the way you approach? I mean, I, so I, I see it. I, I actually can see that it spills over into how you approach social media. Cause again, I've seen you go after people that, that mess with you. Um, but what about in business? Does your competitive nature, did that spill over into, for instance, when you were an orthopedic surgeon? I know you were in Afghanistan. Yes. I listened to that interview uh, on Joe Rogan with you where you talked about like, like the, the, the absolute madness of the trauma uh, 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 center that you were working in there where you were fixing you know, uh, you know, people who were coming in blown uh, half to hell. Um, but you know, you, before all this, you were like, an uh, you know, an orthopedic surgeon at, at, at a high level. Like, were you like, are you, were you just as competitive in that space? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, at the hospital I was at when I, before I left, I was the busiest surgeon in the whole hospital. I did more surgeries than anybody else. And it wasn't that I was just rushing through surgery, but I mean, I just worked, I had a huge work capacity. I was like, yep, I'll do another one. Yep. I'll do another one. I made sure that my team was efficient. We turned around, we didn't screw around. We got it done. Um, I would, you know, in Afghanistan, you know, me and my partner, we did more surgeries than anybody else. We were like, you know, we always keep running numbers. We're like, who's working the hardest, you know? And, you know, it's just kind of, it's just whatever. And, and even now in the business I'm in, I'm constantly looking at numbers, you know, you know, metrics I'm comparing where other people are and we want to beat that. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, I'm, you know, I don't know. Some people like, I guess it was like Michael Jordan or something. He's to compete in anything. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, I, I do have that about, you know, I mean, I, I like to, to succeed. I, I don't mind, you know, I mean, when I, it's, it's not about, like I said, there's certain things I don't care about. I'm not going to compete about those things, you know, and sometimes that frustrates people because they're like, well, you only care about this, you know, and, and there has to be a line, you know, or you can't, you, otherwise you go crazy. I mean, there's things that you, you really, you know, things that I have control over, you know, things, especially things I have to control over, like my, 
performance, you know, physical. I have 100% control of that for the most part. It's rare that I, you know, that, that something will prevent me from, and it's just the only, only limitation is myself in that regard. And so that is very easy to compete in. You know, where there's things where, you know, you're at the, at the will and whim of other people or, or un, 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 you know, un, unforeseeable events, it's a little more frustrating. But at the same time, I think the same principles apply. It's consistency over time. It's, you know, trying to do the best you can over and over again. And that's what I'm doing with this Meter X company that we've got. Uh, you know, I am every day trying whatever. I'm trying, I'm putting, you know, you, I'm probably, you see my, my social media is a lot about just trying to move this company along because I, my goal for that is to impact literally millions of lives and for the better. And I mean, I generally am in this business to, I think we need an alternative to the way we're, we're approaching health in this country. And I think we're, you know, the healthcare system is failing abysmally. I mean, and it's obvious to everyone around, you know, including, you know, both the patients and even the physicians, they know, I mean, they're in there going, this system sucks, but what else can I do? I've got a, you know, quarter million dollars in student loan debt. I've invested 15 years of my life. I can't do anything else. I'm trapped. Um, because there's no real other alternative. And I, you know, like I said, I am, you know, trying to make an alternative for myself. You know, it's one of those things where if you don't like the game or the rules of the game, sometimes you got to make a new game, you know, and, and that's kind of what I'm doing right now. So, so you mentioned MeetRx. Um, can you, can you tell us about your business about MeetRx? Like what, what, what is MeterX? Um, yeah, well, it's, it's evolving, you know, what it is right now and what it's going to be in five years or hopefully two, two very different things. But okay. you know, myself, I was approached by an entrepreneur out of Silicon Valley. Uh, who's a, who's a, uh, my CTO, her name's Masa Rostami. She's a data engineer, AI engineer person, very bright, very hard charging entrepreneurial spirit. And she went on the carnivore diet uh, and reached out to me and said, Hey, look, and I was involved with another group that we were, you know, we were doing some things, but, she said, look, I am very motivated. I am, you know, I'm the person that I, you know, I said, okay, we'll see what happens. And we, we founded this thing back in July of last year. And we launched when, when my book came out on November 19th. And, you know, we, we, we said, well, we're going to start out, you know, providing uh, a platform for people that want to do a carnivore diet. We want to, we want to provide, you know, feedback, support, resources, uh, even some coaching for people that need it because, you know, the information's out there. It's out there freely available. And I tell people not here, just go look at the FAQ. It's free. And there are people that, you know, they just need, they just need support. I mean, there's a lot of people, you know, we know that support helps long-term, long-term compliance and success often depends upon support. And a lot of people, if they go on a carnivore diet, they don't get any family support. They don't get physician support. They don't get their friend support. And a lot of time, all they get is, Oh, you're going to kill yourself, blah, blah, blah. And so having this place, um, to go to this community that we're building, which is growing by, you know, it's thousands of people now and growing every day um, is really, you know, helpful. And then, you know, where we're going from here, we're going to, we're going to, like I said, I think meat is central to the diet. We're going to expand our scope a little bit. You know, there might be some more low carb keto stuff in there and continue just to, you know, have a, have a good support platform. And then, you know, hopefully we can, we can help to, guide policy and we team up with the ranchers and the providers of, of our producers of food. Uh, we're going to have some mobile like on-demand stuff that I think is going to be helpful for people that are you know, really need immediate support. Uh, we've got, you know, some other stuff with data collection where we're going to be looking like my, my thought is, and, you know, based on my experience is that this is a powerful intervention on treating many health, health issues. And I think that, 
if we can start to demonstrate that this, you know, for things like autoimmune disease, diabetes, mental health issues, GI issues, is more efficacious than the standard of care. And oh, by the way, it's one hundredth of the price. You know, it's like a, a fraction, one percent of the cost. Yeah. Um, that is going to be a powerful market. You know, and I think you're going to see. Uh, maybe major employers, maybe UPS or Dell Computers or Boeing or, you know, you know, or, you know, some big players that said, hey, wait a minute, we're spending whatever, you know, 20% of our annual budget on healthcare. Mm-hmm. We might be able to reduce that by 90% and get just get better results. And then, you know, you partner with them. This is a long term, the long game, because I think it's coming to that. I think I think people are seeing the healthcare system is failing. It's sick. Um, I think it's great for certain things. You know, if, if I get in a car wreck and my femur's sticking out of my skin, don't feed me a ribeye steak. I mean, take me to a damn hospital and somebody, you know, put a rod down my femur. I mean, those things we still have to have, but I think, you know, and I think, and I've seen so many physicians, we've got a whole, we've got a hundred physicians that have joined our platform, you know, and they all see the same thing I do. It's, it's frustrating. Um, it's not that the doctors don't want to do it. Some of them don't have the education or knowledge, you know, whether it's, diet in general, lifestyle in general, but most of them just don't have the time. They don't have the tools. They don't, they, they're not given the time. They're not, you know, they're, they're not incentivized to do that. They're, they're told to see as many patients as you can in your eight hour shift. Don't forget to document everything, code everything appropriately and make sure the billing department gets the bills on time. I mean, this is, you know, and the administrators are there trying to, you know, tweak that system and cram more people into the system. And, you know, we'll give you these fancy electronic medical records so we can, we can, we can, you know, figure out how to further monetize this stuff. But I mean, it's, it's, it's really, I mean, it's really kind of taking the heart and soul out of what medicine was, what I, why I went into it 20 some years ago. And I think, you know, I, I just think, you know, the patients see it. I mean, the patients get tired. I mean, you go to the doctor and it's like, well, the expectation is I'm going to get a new pill if I'm in particularly, you know, dire straits and I don't feel good or, you know, I go there, I'm frustrated, and they just shuffle the pills around. We'll try this pill and that pill. And, and it's, it's just, it's inextricably, I mean, the healthcare system is inextricably tied to pharma. And I don't think it's going to, I don't think it'll ever change. Mm-hmm. So I think there has to, I don't think you're going to be able to fix that system internally. I think you just need a new system. And that's part of what I'm doing. You see a lot of physicians are just leaving. They're not, they're no longer employed. They're hanging a shingle out on their own, a virtual shingle. Many of them are doing health coaching, you know, they're, they're getting away from that because it's, I mean, it's a bureaucracy. It's so much an administrative hassle. You know, it's, it's literally, you know, it's, 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 again, it's gutted with the heart and soul of medicine. And uh, I think that I don't think you should go to a doctor for, for, I, I, I hate to say this, but I don't think they're very good at health advice when it comes to like diet, nutrition, lifestyle, getting healthy. I mean, they're okay at, yeah, and they're very good at depending on what it is at sickness. You know, if you're sick, they can they can make you feel better at least temporarily. Or you know, if it's just a traumatic situation, they can they can sometimes save your life. But man, you know, if you're if you're looking for advice on long term quality of life, I don't know that the, the healthcare system is the best place to go. And you um, you coach as well, I think um, on your ex your. So you're actually coach. Am I right? Are you still are you still coaching people if they want advice on the carnivore diet? If uh, yeah, I do. I mean, it's more than just you know. Sometimes it's training, it's exercise, it's lifestyle. You know, because I get a lot of people that are attracted to the fact that I'm an athlete and they want to be athletes and know what I do. And guys in their fifties wanting to get you know in good shape again. And I get a lot of doctors that come to me and professional athletes 
Um, and I do that some, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I, 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 I suspect time goes by, I'll have less and less time for that just because, you know, yeah. as, as, as our company gets more and more successful and larger, well, I'll have to spend more and more, more time doing that, but I'm doing it for now. I, I generally do it. I generally spend about two hours a day in doing that. I've kind of blocked off two hours a day, uh, which is fine. And I really enjoy it. I love talking to people. I love seeing, uh, them, their, their, their eyes light up when they, when they kind of get it and, I love seeing them, you know, six months later or six weeks later when they're like, wow, look, look at all the good stuff. And that's, you know, again, this is where I, I saw early on the value and not that I'm the first person to discover this, but the value of the story, you know, and, and the powerful connection people have when they see somebody, Hey, I could be that guy. You know, you see somebody, you know, it's nice to read a paper. Most people don't have the time or the quite honestly the knowledge to read a medical paper and know what the hell it's the hell it's about. They don't get inspired by that. But if they see somebody that looks like they do in the mirror, and they say, "I'm go from here and what's possible," they say, "Why can't I do that?" And that's why we started out with Meet Heels, and now we you know we've converted to Meet RX, and we've got so many success stories, and we have all these you know videos, and we're just we're just documenting over and over again until we, until we saturate it, you know, it's like, you know, until we're just wearing people down with, with success, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, you can keep denying it until, until the millionth person says, I got healthy doing this. And I think that that strategy is certainly paying off. I mean, it's, it's why I, you know, one of the reasons I got where I am is just by saying, look, I, I'm, I'm, I, I hear you. I'm listening to you. I'm listening to my patients. I'm listening to my clients. As a physician, I learned a lot from my patients. And there's some people out there that don't think that should is, is appropriate. You know, that, 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 you know, you should, you know, your, your patients don't know anything, you know everything. And I, I just disagree. I think that's how medicine started with observation. And if you've got people coming in and telling you, you know, I went on this crazy diet and my knee pain started hurt, stopped hurting you know, you know, maybe the first two or three times you hear it, you might sort of disregard it. But when you start seeing that 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 times, it's pretty damn hard to ignore. And so there has to be something there. And I think this is uh, where the science slowly catches up. And it's got to start somewhere. You know, you can use an epidemiologic study to draw your hypothesis, or you can use a case report. And, you know, for those people that say that it's all anecdote, well, that's true. Um, but at the same point, you can still make that hypothesis. And you, you don't need a formal study to change your diet. I mean, you, you just don't, you don't need your doctor's permission to change your diet. And your doctor doesn't give you permission to eat Twinkies and ice cream. You don't need it for that either. Uh, so if you're going to cut that crap out, you shouldn't need, you know, you shouldn't need to go to the doctor to not eat junk food. And, and Meterex is also set up to train others how to be a, I guess it's a, a health and lifestyle coach. Yeah. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things is, you know, we've kept it all on the platform because our eventual goal, again, is to collect data to, you know, determine if our methods as they are, are actually efficacious and, and find out how successful we are in managing this. And so my goal is, you know, maybe by next year, we'll have enough coaches trained, enough clients where we can say, okay, what is our success rate with, say, psoriasis? What is our success rate with say rheumatoid arthritis, what is our success rate with weight loss, with diabetes, with hypertension, with so on and so on, you know, with depression. And then we can say, okay, and then we can start publishing some of that. You know, we can, we can team up with some researchers, you know, start formally collecting data, but it's important to have everybody doing the same thing so we can monitor them. We can say, you know, and I literally every single day I'm talking to the people that are coaches. Uh, I have a meeting, a weekly meeting. We have coaches come in there. We talk about any concerns. We try to keep everybody on the same page 
Um, you know, not everybody's going to be a hundred percent exactly the same because they all have different backgrounds, but the message is generally fairly uniform. And I want to know, uh, because I think if you're going to attract, uh, you know, a big company, you need to have a, you know, a sort of consistent, uh, you know, a consistent method. Mm-hmm. So you can, so you can say it's reproducible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a powerful, it's a powerful uh, business model. Uh, certainly because you're providing, you're, you're, you're fulfilling a gap, you're fulfilling a, a desperate need that's out there. Uh, and any time you can do that with passion, uh, obviously that's, you know, that's, that's the stuff of legend. That's, that's the, the heady mix that really makes for in, incredible success stories. Um, you've all, and, and, you know, I don't, I don't want this to go by without, um, talking about the book, the carnivore diet. I mean, the, the book that you've written, um, you know, that, that is now, you know, that's the Bible, right. On, uh, on the carnivore diet for, you know, for the uninitiated, what will, if they pick up the carnivore diet, your book, what will they find in there? Yeah, well, I mean, thanks for that. Um, you know, I do think it's a, it's a, it's a good resource for people. I mean, I wrote it when I was writing that book and the, the publisher actually approached me to write, I didn't, I didn't sort of say, I want to write a book and find a publisher. The publisher came and said, Hey, do you want to write a book on the carnivore diet? We've, we've heard a lot of feedback and people want you to write it. So I wrote it and you know, I was just thinking, who am I writing it for? And so I wrote it for kind of the average person who may not already know this stuff. Um, and, and while there is quite a bit of scientific reference in there, it wasn't a scientific tome uh, because I think the science is just too fluid. I just don't think, Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, one of, one of the things we have is, you know, we'll look at a study and then three years later that there's a new study that refutes that previous study. So I didn't want to get, it was more, a lot of, uh, sort of just sort of thought, 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 you know, my, my thoughts and, you know, what we know from historical evolutionary data, uh, what we do seem to know about the science, what it seems to help with all the different diseases, why it seems to help what's going on pathologically and why does it seem to fix these things? Of course, we have some, some that, you know, some of the success stories in there just to kind of show you this is real life people. And then it's a lot of how to, you know, and because there are issues that people will run into, particularly in the transition period and how to deal with it, why it may be occurring, what, what are the common fixes, um, how to, you know, incorporate it, you know, over the long haul, you know, how do you transition away from the diet? You know, how do you modify the diet to your needs if you need to modify it a little bit? And then, uh, you know, then just a lot of reference stuff, you know, like, you know, handy reference stuff. But that's really the, the, the overall. And, and I put my, you know, the, the, the publisher wanted me to put my, my sort of autobiographical bit in there. So the first chapter is just a little bit about the background about me and, you know, why I came to do what I'm doing. And some people have really enjoyed that part. I, I uh, you know, like I said, I, I didn't want to put it in there at the beginning, but they said, yeah, we, need, we want you to put that in there. So that was, that was the beginning. But I think it makes... You know, I, unfortunately, I use a lot of common sense in there, <laughs> and I think that you know, for some people, that's that that you know, they they say, well, you can't just use common sense; you need a scientific study. And I I just kind of point this thing out. I'm saying, look, this is just intuitively obvious. It's empirically obvious. Um, it is, um, you know, and it, and, it, and it's testable. You know, and this is the thing: you can just test it on yourself and see if it works. And I'm not particularly dogmatic about it. I don't really, 
I get people that, that are out there saying, well, I really wanted to be a carnivore, but I couldn't make it work. And I'm like, I don't care what you do, how you, how you want to label yourself. I want you to be successful in your goal. I mean, you keep the goal, the goal. My goal is not to, to only eat steak the rest of my life. My goal is to be healthy, vigorous, athletic, you know, functioning well, you know, good long health span, be happy. Uh, that should be, well, uh, I think that's a, that's a worthwhile goal for many people. And, you know, if your goal is to, to align with this particular philosophy, regardless of what the results are, then I think you're, you're, you've got the wrong approach. I think, you know, like I said, I don't care if you achieve your success physically and mentally, you know, eating another diet. That's great. If it works, it works. I'm just saying that this is an option uh, and, and, and honestly, a very healthy option, a much more healthier option than we were led to believe. Uh, and I think, you know, I, you know, again, if this is a fad that's going to go away, then it'll go away and that's fine. And it should. But I think what's happening is people are getting results and they continue to get good results. And, you know, at some point people want results. And I think that's, uh, you know, it's nice to, to have a diet where you don't have to stress. You don't have to plan and plot and be anxious and spend, you know, hours a week meal prepping and planning and cooking yeah. and, 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 you know, and, and, and then, and then just not getting the results you want. It should be easy. I mean, you know, any other animal on the planet, any wild animal on the planet, you don't, it doesn't need a calculator. It doesn't need a Fitbit or a fitness tracker. It doesn't need a sleep monitor. I mean, it should be, I think humans are, are no different than any other animal in that regard with our, with our requirements. I do think we overcomplicate it. And we've, 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 we've created a diet for us, you know, that, that is not human food, quite honestly. And I think if we get back to that, you know, and it could be an all meat diet. It could be meat plus, plus a piece of fruit here and there. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally fine with that. But I do think there should be a diet that is that simple and, you know, doesn't require any more thought than, you know, breathing. Two more quick questions for you uh, before you go. Um, you've, you, you know, you've taken on the, the, the mother of all tropes out there. Uh, you know, the do you talk about dogma. Um, well, you know, the, the meat is bad dogma uh, is, is like a, you know, a, it, it's a mountain and a half to climb. And somehow, uh, you know, to the uninitiated, you, you, you do it uh, with aplomb and you do it um, in a very, in a way that seems like you can conquer all of the, all, all of these, all of these challenges that have been thrown at you with respect to uh, the naysayers and the, you know, the, the, the doomsayers uh, and, you know, most, most of the official bodies as well that, that line up behind it, yet you're, you're, you're kicking ass and taking names uh, and making this a super popular movement. And so what would really be helpful for anyone uh, who's looking to uh, kind of strive in life is how do you deal with challenges like that, whether in business, whether, you know, as a doctor, whether, you know, just in life in general, like how do you personally view challenges and, and, and overcome them? Like, how, you know, what's your philosophy on that? Well, I mean, you know, first I have to believe in what I'm doing. You know, if I didn't believe what I was doing uh, and, and, and have results to back it up, then, then I wouldn't be there. But I mean, I think that, 
uh, just like anything, I mean, it's just consistency over time. It's just, you know, uh, you know, like I say, every day I wake up, I don't have scurvy. Uh, you know, as a day is another day of victory. You know, for for the for against naysayers. And I, you know, like I said, I'm I'm very much in their face, saying, look, hey, I'm not dead. I've got not what you said was going to happen hasn't happened. And not only is it me, and I and I'm, you know, I'm just I don't I don't take a I don't take a day off. I don't miss an opportunity to capitalize. I mean, I realize that this is a multifaceted fight. It's not just about research papers. It's not just about social media. It's not just about, um, you know, athletics or anything. You know, it, it's, you know, there's propaganda you have to dis dis dispel and sometimes you have to use your own propaganda. Um, I, you know, I, I guess I realize that this is a fight and I realize that there are no rules. And I realize that, you know, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. And so I think you've got to fight back in a way that, you know, that, that you can compete with your, opponents. And so I'm, you know, like I said, you know, there's some people that, that really get offended by the fact that I am aggressive and sometimes, you know, use the F word or sometimes I, you know, go after people fairly, fairly aggressively. But at the same time, um, a lot of people appreciate that. And a lot of people will tell me, I wish I had the courage to do what you did. You're saying what I want to say, but I'm afraid to say it because I've got a big social media presence and I don't want to, I don't want to alienate some people. But I, you know, where did I, you know, I don't really think I had too much to lose. You know, I, I felt like, you know, I'm, you know, I've kind of created this space for me and now it's just either, you know, you either go big or you go home. And, and so that's, that's what I'm doing. And so whether, you know, five years from now, we'll see uh, where, where things all shake out. I strongly am optimistic about where my position will be. Uh, I, you know, I still think that we still are going to have a huge uphill fight, uh, but you know, the, the nice thing is there is a tipping point. And I think once that tipping point is reached, uh, I think you can really move, move the needle in a big way. And, and I think, I think we're, we're, we'll approach that in, in, in the coming years. It's going to take a couple of years. Of, and the other thing is I got a lot of help. I mean, I early on realized that this has to be a grassroots. This has to be a horizontal spread. It can't just be a one guy vertical deal. And so there are, you know, if for some reason, whatever, I get assassinated by vegans or, you know, whatever, you know, some craziness or something, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, the, it's not going away. This, this sort of, uh, uh, the, you know, the toothpaste is out of the tooth, out of the, out of the, out of the, out of the toothpaste uh, tube or the genie's out of the bottle. I mean, it's, there's too many people that have experienced this. And, you know, like I said, while I am happy to sort of, you know, lead the charge to some degree that I can, I realize that I'm not indispensable. Um, I think, you know, uh, there'd be people, you know, dancing a jig if I keeled over and died. I know that, but I mean, <laughs> hopefully that won't happen, but you never know. I mean, you know, like I said, I mean, maybe I'm wrong and I'm not, I'm not, I am not uh, opposed to the idea that I could potentially be wrong. And, you know, if I see something that unequivocally proves that I am, then I'll, I'll change my message. This is a thing, you know, I'm not married to any dogma, but, I do like seeing get people get results. And that's, you know, that's what I'm seeing. You know, this is as a position that has been helping people, you know, for, for decades now, this is the most um, gratifying work I've ever done as far as, you know, the, the, the number of lives I've impacted and not just in a, in a, in a, in a, you know, moderate way, but in a big, huge way. I mean, there's people that are like literally, you know, 
disabled completely out of life. I mean, they've basically checked out of life. They are, you know, more, you know, just, you know, suicidally depressed mm-hmm. and that goes away. Uh, and that to me is, I mean, that, that, that gets me up out of bed every day that, that that's happening. So I think that that's another thing that gets me, you know, gets me charged up is these success stories and the people that I interact with pretty much daily saying that, man, you've changed my life. And, uh, you know, in a selfish way, that makes me feel good. That's amazing. That's amazing. One final question. Um, you've been a leader, um, certainly in uh, your practice as a surgeon, you, you, chief of, um, of orthopedics. Um, you've been in the military. Uh, you've, uh, you've led this movement. Uh, you're a CEO and a founder of, of Meterex. Um, as a leader, what do you, what, what do you find to be the most important qualities for you, uh, to successful leadership qualities? Or traits that are- well, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, and again, there's a lot of different leadership styles. I, I value pretty much everybody that that's around me. I mean, I, I listen to everybody, you know, some, some people have really stupid ideas, you know, but I listen to it anyway. And, you know, if it's, if it's appropriate, we look into that. Um, I, I like to lead by example. Um, I try to, you know, like I said, you know, you see me out there, you know, it's coronavirus lockdown. I'm not sitting there on the couch watching Netflix. I'm out there getting better. Um, I, I try to, you know, again, lead from the front, lead from example, uh, you know, try and encourage people. I want everyone to be successful. People that I lead, it's, it's not important that I'm successful. I mean, it is, but I mean, I want everyone to be successful to, to the capacity that they can be. I'd love for everybody to be, you know, whatever, whatever their goals are. But I mean, goodness, I mean, it starts, you know, the first thing you do, and I think this is, this is a message that we have, we should have for the country. I mean, if we want to, you know, if we want to you know, play politics and Donald Trump's going to say, make America great again, well, it starts with a healthy populace. And I think if you have a sick, disabled, depressed, overweight population, you're never, you're never going to be great. By definition, you are not great. And, you know, you know, again, I don't play politics. I, I don't get into that stuff very much because it's just, it's too darn distracting. Yeah. But I mean, I think that that has to be, uh, you know, you know, so I like the people that work with us as volunteer, we are all, the nice thing about what I do at Meter X is pretty much every person to a T has experienced the diet, has had a life altering change and they're passionate about it. And it's very easy to lead passionate people, uh, you know, because they just want it. They want to see the growth. They want to see the success, you know, our success is their success and, you know, their success is the success of their loved ones, quite honestly. And so that is, you know, it makes the job easy. You know, again, part of affecting the right people, you know, we just, we just have positive people. And, you know, in the rare occasion we get somebody that is not, you know, positive. We just say, look, it's, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're a better place somewhere else. And so it's kind of one, you know, somebody taught me, my father-in-law once taught me, he said, you know, um, if you want to change somebody, if you want to change a person, change the person, you know, you're not, you're not going to change who people are, you know, you just, you just like, yeah, yeah this guy's going, if they demonstrate they're this way and you want them to change, you, good luck, you know, <laughs> you know, you better just cut your losses early and, and move on and just part, part ways on good terms, hopefully, and, and go from there. But, um, I am, you know, very fortunate that, uh, 
I, you know, I got a lot of happy people around me, which is, it makes life easier. You know, this is a thing I, I can't, you know, that, that, that makes leading an, or, an organization of happy people is pretty damn easy uh, to, to try to help lead. I can say, I can say that for sure. I think we're, we're seeing happier people with, with this diet. That's powerful, man. That is so powerful. Uh, Dr. Baker, where can our listeners find you? Well, at meterx.com, I'm there every single day doing a video session. I host a video session. We have anywhere from 50 to 100 people on video chat, so I can answer questions directly every single day, Monday through Sunday. I mean, seven days a week at 9 a.m. Pacific, meterx.com. You can join for free, uh, at least for the first month. Uh, I'm on social media at Instagram, Sean, S-H-A-W-N, Baker, B-A-K-E-R, 1967. I do a YouTube video on my channel, Sean Baker, uh, pretty much most days. Uh, and then uh, Twitter, S Baker MD, and that's you know, that's kind of where I'm at. And then, of course, I am available for consultation. You know, there's a link in my Instagram bio if you want to do that. Um, uh, but yeah, as long as I can do that, I, like I said, I, I suspect I'll be able to do it at least for the rest of this year, and then maybe I won't be able to do it anymore, depending on how busy we get. Uh, that is absolutely awesome. Uh, the uh, conversation was extraordinary. Thank you so much for joining us here at the Alpha Human Podcast. Um, really, it's been an absolute pleasure. Lawrence, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. I, 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 you know, I like to ramble a lot, so for, thanks for indulging me. Anyway. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, the, uh, the pleasure's all mine, and it's been super interesting, and I love your podcast. Uh, love the content that you put out, so we're, we're gonna keep looking for more. Uh, and we're hungry for it, man. We're hungry for it. So keep giving it to us. Well, we'll try to keep feeding everybody. Yeah, and we've got the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Another one I do with Zach Bitter. Good podcast and good guests and good information. I, I learn a lot, too. That's the fun thing about having a podcast. You learn. Exactly. Yes, which is cool. Anyway. All right. Well, i got to run, man. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you so much, Dr. Baker. Take care. <laughs>